I don't know uh, how many of you watch um, TED Talks or have watched them or know what it is at least. Does everyone know what that is? It's kind of like this really short, uh, usually they're pretty short, like I think like 10 to 25 minutes or so of people uh, teaching on some sort of topic that maybe they're an expert in or have a lot of experience in. And I don't know how many there are. They've been going for a long time. There's got to be thousands of them. But there's this one I watched um, a number of years ago a guy, by a guy named Barry Schwartz, who's a psychology professor. And I was looking at, you know, uh, it has 17 million views, and it is the 54th um, highest viewed TED Talk on the site. And like I said, I think there's like thousands of them. And it's always stuck with me what he talked about. It was in 2005, and he called it the paradox of choice. And he talks about, I'll just read this, um, this uh, paragraph, how he explains um, what he's trying to get after. He says, the, the official dogma of all Western industrial societies is if we are interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, the way to do that is to maximize individual freedom. The reason for this is both that freedom in and of itself is good, valuable, worthwhile, and essential to being human. And because if people have freedom, then each of us can act on our own to do the things that will maximize our welfare. And no one has to decide on our behalf. The way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. The more choice people have, the more freedom they have. And the more freedom they have, the more welfare they have. And this is so deeply embedded in the water supply that it wouldn't occur to anyone to question. It's also deeply embedded in our lives. And so his lesson that he's saying that we live by in Western industrial societies is if you want people to be happy, you need to give them more freedom. And if you want people to have more freedom, you need to give them more choices. And then he goes into several examples. One is uh, when, a long time ago when he was growing up, when you walked into a store and you wanted to buy a pair of jeans, uh, there was kind of one type of jean to buy, one brand, one fit. And if they didn't feel good, uh, it really wasn't your fault because that's all you had. That's the only choice you had. But now you go into a store like Kohl's and you have all different brands of jeans, all different colors of jeans, all different ways that they fit, how high or low they're on your waist and you know all of that, how tight they are on your legs. And so now the issue is because I have all these choices, uh, if I go into Kohl's and I don't find a pair of jeans that fits perfectly, it's really my fault. I didn't find the right pair of jeans. It's out there. There's all these options. When there's no options but one, it's, well, that's just how it is. But when there's all these options, there's, uh, I, we could get deeply unhappy because it's like, well, these jeans don't fit. But if I just looked hard enough, I could have found the right one and I would have been happy. And so he talks about the paradox of choice is that uh, we think that the more choices we have in life, and we equate choices with freedom, the more happy we will be. More uh, choices on jeans, more choices on restaurants, more choices on whatever, and we'll be happier. But he says it actually doesn't work because we're just more disappointed because we think, well, I just didn't find the right thing. I've got to keep looking for it. It's got to be out there. And he goes into you know, cell phones. This was 2005, and he was talking about cell phones. But now, think now, the number of choices for what we can do with our time. If I'm sitting in the doctor's office and I'm waiting... Used to be you just sat there and looked at stuff or grabbed a magazine. Now it's if I'm bored, uh, it's only my fault because I have so many things at my fingertips. Um, and as a, as a culture, we think um, even when it comes to sexuality and gender, we have a choice. There's all these options for how we can express our sexuality. There's all these options for what it means to be a man or a woman or uh, 
any other options. And even all the options we have for being able to have kids before it was just, well, either I can have kids or not. And now there's a whole spectrum of choices in that you can go, you, um, go through fertility treatments, but even there, then you can get into, like, I'm going to do IVF, and then you can adopt embryo. You know, all, there's all these things. You can have somebody else, else's, you know, stuff uh, brought into you so that you can have a kid. There's like, all these options. So if you can't have one, whose fault is it? It's really yours because you haven't figured out the option that works. And so what he's trying to point out, the paradox of choice, is all of this choice a good thing? And what does it mean to be free? And what takes away our freedom? In this series, we've been, you know, we started this uh, back kind of in the spring in First Peter, and then now we're going to finish it off now. I think September 11th is going to be the final day in this uh, letter. And this series, I named it Different. Because really, Peter's writing to a group of people who, because their relationship with God has changed, now their relationship with the world has changed. And people are noticing that they're different, and they're not doing the same things they used to do. They're kind of abstaining from the worshiping the pagan gods, or coming to the parties, or whatever it is that they're abstaining from. And people are noticing, and they're experiencing uh, hostility and harassment because of that. And so Peter's writing, telling them, remember, this is why you're different. You should stay different. This is a good thing. And also, here's how you can respond differently to them than they would expect you to respond, that you're being mistreated in these ways, but how do you respond to people who are mistreating you because of your faith? And as I've said in this series, uh, in the United States, this message of Peter is going to more and more apply, as uh, one um, pastor, Tony Evans, says, we've lost, Christians have lost home field advantage. And that shouldn't make us go into despair and be like, no, we got to get our home field advantage back that, you know, the, the nation is cheering for us. But more and more, um, our country is cheering against Christians, at least the orthodox, ancient Christian views of sexuality and gender and how we have to live and, and, and whatnot. And so uh, this isn't a reason for despair, but it, it makes us need to realize Am I going to wear my team Jesus jersey and show people that's the team I'm on, even if the world is cheering against that team? And so this is letters, Peter's how-to manual for how to be different and how to respond differently to people who don't agree with you. And what Peter writes about here today, is it's a bit surprising because um, he talks about in chapters 1 through 2 about here's who you are in Christ, this is what God's done for you, he's changed your, your present, he's changed your past, he's changed your future, and so now you have this different lifestyle, and Jesus is your Lord, God is your ultimate authority, he's where you get your identity from, and so we might expect him to say, uh, just kind of ignore the government, like, who cares? Or just kind of ignore authority figures, who cares? You have a different king of your life. And it's surprising what he does, and he applies... Um, uh, uh, verses 11 and 12 in chapter 2 are kind of like his summary command, and now he starts applying it, and he applies it to these different relationship situations, and really his advice is, submit yourself. Be subject to these people. He's, and this week, as we're seeing, he's applying it to uh, people and, and their citizens' response to their government, and then slaves and their response to their masters. And, you know, to be frank, these um, it's not a direct match. We can't say, like, what the, these readers were experiencing is they're an empire with an emperor who appointed leaders. They don't have a vote. This isn't a you know, democracy at this point. And in fact, these people living in this area, they've been taken over by the Roman Empire. So it's not just a, like, 
hey, we put these guys in power and we just tell them to do whatever they want to. No, they were invaded and taken over and now they're under military occupation. Um, and so that's a little different than our, our relationship with government where we have a voice. We get to say we don't want this person in office. We can vote um, and all these things. And the same thing is um, you could say like, well, okay, there's these slaves um, and they're talking to their masters about how to relate to their masters. So maybe we'd say, well, okay, that's kind of us as employees relating to our employers. I mean, not really. Like, there's a lot less choice they had in whether you're a slave or not. And for us, we have tons of choices of what to do if our employer is uh, mistreating us. And so we have a lot more freedom of choice in who is an authority over us. But because of that, we have a harder time submitting to authority figures in our lives. We have a voice and we have a choice. And in some ways, we choose our authority figures. And if we don't like them... We leave that job, or we leave that thing, we report to HR, or we vote against them. And so we have choices. But what if we had no choice over who our governing authorities are? What if we had no choice over who our employer is? What if there were not multiple options of which church to attend? That's another way that we voice our disapproval of authority figures. We vote with our feet, and we might leave a church um, for those reasons. So what would we do if it's like, there's one church in this town. Uh, this is one church Peter's writing to in these various um, areas in their towns is one church in Ephesus, one church in Corinth. And so if you don't like one authority figure, what do you do? And so this passage challenges our basic assumption that more choices means more freedom, and more freedom means more happiness. And so let's look at the first part. He talks to citizens in verses two, or chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And as I said, he's applying the commands up in 11 and 12 uh, where you, um, throughout the rest um, of this section. And so in, you see in verse 13, it says, be subject. And then look down at verse 18. Uh, be subject. Servants, be subject to your masters. And then chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So next week we're going to talk about glorifying God um, as husbands and, and wives. That's what he gets to uh, later. And actually, I think he says in a way that husbands ought to submit to their wives in a certain extent. He talks about honoring them. And so... This, the command is given is be subject. How do you obey? How do you be different in this culture? You be subject to these people. And he says, uh, in, to, uh, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, um, which in some ways is saying that's kind of a, a downgrade on how people would have envisioned the empire. The emperor, they literally said he's Lord of the world. He's the son of God. Like he, In some way, he is a... a a deity aspect to him. Not that maybe he was a, you know, a god, but the son of God to rule this. And he's saying, well, these are just human institutions. Don't be subject to the government as a divine institution. These are human institutions. And so he puts it, you know, knocks the government down a level, even while saying, be subject to them. These aren't gods, and they're just men. And he says that the emperor... Uh, appoints these governors so he says be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme so he's at the top of the food chain or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good and basically saying look the governors are in place if you do good they're going to praise you if you do evil they're going to punish you and so he's saying you Christians you ought to be good beneficial citizens these people are in place and they'll recognize you're good um, and he knows full well people can be corrupt leaders, but he's saying, in general, this is where pe- what they're here to do is to keep law and order happening. And so we might ask ourselves, if we left Woodstock, or if we left our neighborhood, or if we left 
anything. Would the place miss us? Man, there's a lot less people doing good around here. Uh, or, you know, if our church left, would our the city miss us? Because government should see Christians as these are people doing good and they're staying out of trouble. And then verse 15, verse 15, he says, okay, well, so why should we do this? Why should we be subject to that? Verse 15, he says, for or because this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so it'd be easy for um, people to look at the Christians who are like, we're no longer worshiping the emperor, we're no longer worshiping the gods everyone else is worshiping, we're no longer partaking in the rituals that people are associated with worshiping those gods, and we're changing our behavior to not be the same morals and the same actions as everyone else. Their lifestyle has changed. And so then people might say easily, these people are kind of ruining society. This is what it means to be a Roman. This is what it means to be, you know, whatever it is. And people could say, you know, society is just going to go downhill if all these Christians are allowed to do whatever they want, to not worship the emperor, to not worship the, the normal gods. Um, they're rejecting the emperor. They're rejecting our way of life. And they are different. And Peter commanded them in verse 11, uh, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, reminding them, Yes, I know you're citizens of the Roman Empire, yeah. But since you've trusted in Jesus, since you've made him your Lord, you're actually citizens of a higher kingdom, of his kingdom now. And so it's going to feel like you're strangers in your own land, that you've changed your lifestyle and other people haven't gone with you. So now you're like strangers there. But he says, basically, you should be doing good so it can put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, people who are accusing them of ruining society. And he's basically saying they should be baseless accusations. If somebody goes to the governor and says, these Christians are messing things up, the governor comes in with his soldiers and checks things out, and he's like, I'm not seeing any of this. Uh, And it's putting to silence these people that are accusing them of being what's wrong. And so they should see exemplary citizens paying their taxes, doing good, helping out, respectful, honoring, submitting to authority. And when Pontius Pilate looked at Jesus, he's brought before him, uh, Pilate, the governor there that was uh, had uh, jurisdiction to execute Jesus, religious leaders bring him, and they're like, he's he's saying there's another lord, there's another king. He's a rebel against the empire, and Pilate looks at him and he questions him, and, and uh, they concludes, this guy isn't a rebel against the empire. Like, what are these guys trying to do? He realizes that the Jewish leaders were trying to just get Jesus in trouble because they're jealous, and. He sees that their accusations are baseless, putting to silence, but Pilate still has them crucified, which um, yeah, he falls into the will of the people. And he tells them in verse 16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And, we've, and back in chapter 1, verses 18, 18 through 21, um, we were told that by the blood of Jesus, by the death of Jesus Christ, God's Son, we were ransomed from our old way of life. Ransomed is a slavery word, that when a slave needs to be freed, they pay the ransom price, and now they've been redeemed. And so he's saying, live as people who are free, remember? You were ransomed by the blood of Christ out of slavery to those old ways you were living, that lifestyle, worshiping those gods that were empty and taking you nowhere. But he also says, don't use that freedom as a cover for evil. Don't be saying, I'm free from obeying you because I have Jesus as Lord. I don't have to listen to you. Jesus has set me free from human authorities. And he's saying, don't use your freedom in Christ as a reason to be a rebel against the government. You're supposed to submit. And he says, as servants of God. And actually, 
because God has freed us, now we're actually free to love people. Because we aren't desperate to get something from them. Your hope and security don't depend on the government, on having them on your side or being on their good side. Now you can love them unselfishly with no agenda because you say, uh, my future doesn't depend on you, but I'm still going to, in my freedom, serve you and love you. And you can say, Caesar, you know, these guys would be saying, Caesar isn't our Lord, but we'll submit to the Lord, Caesar for the Lord's sake as servants of God. And so we've been freed to submit. And he has these four commands that he just rattles off in the last verse there, um, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so honor everyone. Every human being, whether an authority figure or not, should be honored. Not the same as submitting, but dignity and respect as in looking at an image bearer of Christ, uh, an image bearer of God. And he says, love the brotherhood, which is talking about love your faith family. He says that back in one, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, later 5, 9 again. He says, fear God, and uh, he's, Peter's careful that only God is to be feared. He's the only one given centrality, the only one that ultimate submission is given to or honor. And our fear of God is putting him at the center, not this fear, oh no, he's going to punish us, but this who's at the center, who's top priority. He's at the center, and we only fear God. Um, and so we don't treat any human being as God. And we can too easily, even as Christians, uh, put our hope in political parties and leaders as if one party is going to make everything right, as if this one party is on the side of Christianity and they're going to legislate all Christian laws uh, into our country. And we can put our hope in that, that they'll solve all our problems and bring heaven to earth. So much fear is expressed sometimes when our party doesn't win, and so much hope is placed in a candidate make all things new. And he's saying, no, no, no. Fear God. He is the one that is your ultimate authority that you're trusting in to make things right in this world. And he says, honor the emperor. emperor. Give the emperor the respect the office deserves. He denies that the emperor is everything, but doesn't say the emperor is nothing. And so we can do the same thing. Whoever's the president, whoever's our mayor, whoever's our governor, we can say they aren't everything. They're not going to bring heaven to earth, but I'm going to give them the respect that's due for their office. And so this, I find it fascinating, the balance that Peter walks here. He's saying, who's your ultimate king? Jesus. And so then he doesn't say, well, government is all bad. Just ignore it. And he doesn't say, well, government is all good, so just do whatever. He says, you know, submit for the Lord's sake, as servants of God, your ultimate one who's guiding you, and you're submitting out of that. And he just has this very balanced approach to all of this, is that you're not submitting to governors as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That's Jesus. And yet you do serve, submit to, to serve them. And one example from the Old Testament that's helpful is uh, the book of Daniel records the actions of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these were four Jews. That's that get taken out of the land of Israel, brought to uh, Babylon, and now they're made into servants of the, the king there. And so it would be easy to say, well, we're not going to do what you say. Like, why would we work for your good? You ripped us out of our land. You took us away from our family, our people, where we live. You took us from you know, our houses. And now how do you expect us to work for your good? But that's exactly what they do. And yet they draw a line in certain spots. Uh, they want everyone to... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge statue and we want everyone to bow down to this and worship it. And they say, no, that's, that's where we draw the line. So everyone else bows down. 
they're standing there, and then they get brought. Some of the governors or you know his lower leaders bring them before uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's like, "Well, you know, you know the the punishment for this. I gotta throw you in the fire." That's what, which yeah, it sounds kind of casual how I just said that, but you know the punishment. You're gonna get thrown in the furnace, and they're like. Um, yeah, we, we believe our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to that statue. So they draw the line there, even as they work um, for their good. And Peter, the same thing. He's saying this here, but in the book of Acts, um, they're preaching Jesus. They get brought before the religious leaders. The religious leaders say, you need to stop this. And they're like, well, we need to obey God, not obey men. And one way you can think of this is that we submit, unless we're the government is forbidding what God commands or commanding what God forbids. Other than that, we submit. We follow with our leaders. And then he goes on to slavery in verses 18 uh, through 20. And I want to give a little background on slavery here. And I'm going to, um, How do you become a slave in the first century? You could be captured in war. You could be kidnapped. You could be born into a slave household. Or you could sell yourself into slavery in order to survive economic hardships. And what was slavery like? I'm just going to read this quote from a, a, a commentary I was reading that I found helpful. It, just, it, it wasn't a great way to summarize it. I thought he did a good job. What was slavery like? Many slaves lived miserably, partic- lived miserably, particularly those who served in the mines. Other slaves, however, served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, and could even own other slaves. It would not be unusual for a slave to be better educated than the master. Those who are familiar with slavery from the history of the United States must be aware of imposing our historical experience on New Testament times, since slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race, and American slave owners discouraged education of slaves. Still, slaves in the Greco-Roman world were under the control of their masters, and hence they had no independent existence. They could suffer brutal mistreatment at the hands of their owners, and children born in slavery belonged to masters rather than the parents who gave them birth. Slaves had no legal rights, and masters could beat them, brand them, and abuse them physically and sexually. Uh, J.A. Harrell remarks, Despite claims of some New Testament scholars, ancient slavery was not more humane than modern slavery. Slaves could purchase their freedom in the Greco-Roman world with the help of their masters, a procedure called manumission, Manumission, however, was available mainly for urban slaves, and most slaves had no hope of being manumitted. And so some things are similar to what slavery is like in the United States, but many things were different. And we might wonder, why don't the writers of the New Testament command abolition? Why don't they command slave owners, get rid of your slaves? Why, aren't they, why doesn't Peter write in half this letter, letter, slavery is evil, it should be gone? Like, this is inhumane. This is, we should, one human should not own another. And a couple of reasons could be given. For one, the church was a very small minority of people who had no social capital or power. And so you could say, I wouldn't say that they were like, well, there's no hope in ending this, so might as well not do anything. But rather, what they were thinking was, uh, criticizing the practice of slavery would give no help to the ordinary lives of people living in slavery who had become followers of Jesus. And they wanted to give them guidance. How do you follow Jesus as a slave? Like they saw, we can't get rid of slavery, but how do we help a slave follow Jesus as a slave, giving them encouragement for their ordinary life, rather than like, yeah, you guys shouldn't be slaves, we should be done with this, so, you know, sorry about that, we'll, hopefully it'll be gone someday. They're like, no, how do you follow Jesus in your current situation? And, uh, you know, 
So one of the questions was, how can you honor your Lord as a slave? How do you respond to this type of persecution and oppression like Jesus responded to it, which is what you'll get to at the end. Remember, this is how Jesus responded to these sorts of evils in society. And when you are in those situations, you have an opportunity to be like Jesus and learn from him. And there's no place in the New Testament where slavery is endorsed or commended. And there's nowhere it's rooted in the created order, such as marriage, like God. This is something God created. There's nowhere that it's rooted in anything um, besides just acknowledging it's there. And why might they suffer? Why might these slaves suffer? Uh, it seems that Peter's thinking for disobeying their earthly masters because, for, because of their allegiance to Jesus, that they draw a line at some point where an, a master might say, do this, and they say, I can't. Or they're saying, I don't like this new God you're worshiping. Change it. And they say, I'm, I'm not going to. Um, it could also be possible that Jesus got really, you know, slaves, uh, slave masters just losing their temper, beating them, and, and that's another option where it's not about faith, but just about it being a poor master. And basically he tells them, we need to submit as much as we can. We submit unless they command what God forbids or forbid what God commands. We want to say yes to their leadership as much as possible. And he talks about how this is, he said this is uh, gracious in God's sight, meaning this is commendable in God's sight. Verses 19 through 20, he basically says, if you're suffering for doing wrong, well, you, get, you simply are getting what you deserve. You're suffering because you did wrong. But if you're suffering for doing good in God's eyes, from God's perspective, you can trust that even though you're not being rewarded by your earthly master, you will be rewarded by your heavenly master in the end. And he talked about in chapter 1, your reward, you have this future inheritance, uh, you have this future hope, you're going to, you, if you stay true to Jesus, at the end you'll receive praise and honor and glory from him. So even though you're not getting that now from your earthly slave master, praise, honor, and glory, and that you're experiencing this terrible situation, just focus on the fact that if you're suffering for doing good as a slave of this master, you will be rewarded in the end by your Lord. Praise, honor, and glory. And one of the things Jesus would talk about his servants receiving from him is, well done, good and faithful servants. So even if your earthly master is saying, you're bad, you're, you know, whatever they're saying, they're not saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You can trust, but I will receive that from my true and ultimate master in the end. And so this is a principle for all masters, not just slaves, or not, sorry, not all masters, for all believers, not just slaves. So it doesn't be like, well, I guess if I'm a slave, this doesn't apply to me. It applies to all situations. Whether If you're doing good and people are still kind of against you, whether it's at work, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's in relationships or anything, that if we are doing good, we can trust that God will give us um, uh, a reward in the end, even if we're not being rewarded now. And he says you do this uh, conscious of God, or he says, verse 19, mindful of God, meaning we're mindful of what he wants, what's his will, what are his ways in this situation. If you suffer because of your relationship with God and your obedience to God, you can be sure God will reward you in the end. And so he tell, he, then he goes in verses 21 through 25 into the example of Jesus. And that's where I want us to end, is uh, looking at Jesus, and applying it to both these situations, and then considering what this could mean for us. And he says, and you've been called to this. Uh, this is what you're called to. He says in verse 21, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you. And we read earlier in the book that Jesus' path was not glory, 
didn't get to the finish line first. It was suffering and then glory, being mistreated by the world and then vindicated by God. Death and then resurrection and ascension. And he's saying, this is your path too. And suffering is not a detour off what God's called you to. It's actually the highway that he's called you to that. In the same way that Jesus suffered in an evil, unjust world, so too you are called to suffer. And that's the way, the pathway to glory. And so he says, Jesus is your example of righteous suffering, verses 21 through 25. He's our example, but he's even more than that, because it's by what Jesus has done on our behalf that we are both enabled and empowered to follow his example. If Jesus hadn't done it for us, we couldn't just be like, yeah, I guess he's just my example, but the actual fuel that allows us to go down that road and follow Jesus as our example is what he's done for us first. And the Christian life is not about trying really hard to do what Jesus would do, but to allow what Jesus has done to transform what we do from the inside out. That we look first, this is what he's done for me. He says it right there, verse 21. Because Christ also suffered for you. He suffered for you. What he did was on your behalf. And we read Isaiah 53 that uh, this was said. This is what's going to happen when the Messiah, the Savior, the King that God's appointed comes. He's going to suffer on behalf of his people's sin, iniquity, and transgression. He's going to bear our sins and through him bring us healing. It's what he's done for us. He's suffered for us. And it says, uh, he left you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. And the word example is kind of cool there. Is It was the word used of children who uh, would trace over letters uh, in the first century as they're learning their alphabet. So that, that word there is like, here's the example letters that you trace over. And so it's like Jesus' life is this example life. And now we're supposed okay, how do I live? We're tracing um, what he did with his life. And then the, the second word, footsteps, leaving an example that you might follow in his footsteps. Literally, footprint or footsteps, meaning where are Jesus' footprints? And I want to follow that. Where are those footprints leading? Where is he taking me? And we would add, well, he suffered for us, we're told. How did he suffer for us? And what was the example he left? What were those letters he left that were supposed to trace over? Where do those footprints uh, go? Well, he described, Peter describes, using language from Isaiah 53, how he suffered the hands of Israel's religious leaders and of Rome. And it were t- the words that he uses here, he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And one of the key phrases he says here is that in verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, when Jesus is getting mistreated, unjustly put on trial, unjustly condemned, sentenced to death, he continues to entrust himself to God as the judge who judges justly. These people aren't carrying out justice. And I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to put my faith and in, in my hope in God working this out in the end. He didn't insist on his rights. didn't talk about what he was entitled to. Listen, I'm the son of God. Don't you know who I am? How can you treat me like this? He didn't say he deserved better and they're going to pay. But he looked to someone else to execute justice, to provide justice. And I often think of it as when somebody does wrong to me and I'm having a hard time letting go of it, I say to myself, well, either they're going to pay for this before God or Jesus has already paid for it. And so I don't need to worry about it. They trust in Jesus. Whatever they did to me is forgiven by him. And so why should I seek 
um, their punishment to pay them back. Or And the other case is if they never trust in Jesus, well, they're going to pay for this before God. It's not up to me to be their judge. And we would might maybe say, but it's not fair. They shouldn't get, get away with this. And you're right. And they won't get away with it. But it's not up to us to judge them. And Jesus had a lot of warnings about us taking the role of judge in other people's lives. That the measure you use will be measured to you. Be merciful. Focus more on the log in your own eye than rather than the speck in someone else's eye. If we're more focused on other people's sin, failures, and shortcomings, we need to make a change to say, I'm going to entrust myself to the one who's going to do justice in the end. And we're told that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Our sins, my sins, your sins. Why? It says in the rest of verse 24, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this is how Jesus freed us, that his death bought us out of slavery to sin, Satan, and death to our old lifestyle. And it's not that just that, okay, he paid for our sins, so now you can be forgiven, but also uh, we're saved from the penalty of sin, but also saved from the power of it, that he takes us out of that slavery, so whatever's happened in our past, forgiven. And now you're out of slavery, free to be a servant of God and to live for him by the Spirit's power in us. And then he says also, by his wounds you've been healed. Why? Because, verse 25, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That Jesus is now our good shepherd that we entrust ourselves to, who's looking over us, that he's our ultimate leader, ultimate Lord, the King of kings, Lord of lords. And of all people, Jesus had the most rights to resist and had the most authority and power to do something about what was being done to him. And yet, he walked through it, suffering, then glory. And Jesus, we saw, he's not a political revolutionary. How he talks in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, how he talks about in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke uh, chapter 6, he both commanded and modeled the attitude that Peter describes here, uh, that he, how he interacted with religious leaders and the government. And really this example is what Martin Luther King Jr. adopted in the civil rights movement, is that uh, we are going to do peaceful protests, non-violent protests. And even if the police come against us, you just need to take it. Because if people see us fighting back, that's going to ruin what we're after here. And so it's this non-violent protesting, which... Uh, what, I mean, I don't know, what year was that? year, year or two ago when we were having all these riots of people destroying and damaging things. And it's like, you're saying there's something wrong in society, so now you're also becoming a problem in society by destroying things. And that's not how Martin Luther King Jr. did it. So Peter's message, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, verse 11, chapter 2, we're citizens of a different kingdom. We're servants of a different master. And you'd expect them to say, don't submit to these masters. Don't submit to the government. You're free, and so live as free people. You don't need to submit to them. But actually, he says, live as free people by submitting to them. If you're rebelling against them, you wouldn't actually be living in the freedom God's given you. And so, how do we relate to authority figures in our lives in a way that is good for us, glorifying to God? How do we look different? how we relate to authority figures. How do we represent Jesus' kingdom? And our culture's attitude toward authority is pretty bad. I mean, the American story is about problems with authority, right? That's how this nation came into existence, which I'm not saying, you know, I'm not commenting on the goodness or badness of that, just saying we don't like authority. You know, everyone has the right to pursue, what is it, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? It's like 
We don't want, nobody should be able to restrict me and tell me what to do. I need to be free to pursue all those things. And most every Disney movie, movie that's indoctrinated our kids for decades are about problems with authority, of needing to get out from under bad authority. And our culture teaches that love means you approve of every choice I make. Otherwise, you don't love me. You aren't supporting me. You are oppressing me. You're taking away my freedom. If you're, taking, if you're not approving of my choices, you're taking away freedom, and now I can't be happy. And so we may often think, if you've got someone bad in your life, bad boss, bad governor, bad manager, you don't need that in your life. Be around people who are going to support you and build you up. And I completely agree that that is our ideal. But we too often think that in order to be, to be free, we can't be submitted to anyone. We think that in order to be free, we can't have any restrictions on our options or decisions. And that's not what Peter says here. You're free from putting your hope in these people for your you know, everlasting happiness. You're putting your hope in these people to do everything right. Let's just acknowledge they're all imperfect. He doesn't say his words. Those are my words. They're all imperfect. They're not going to do it right but submit to them as much as you can because your hope isn't ultimately in them. It's somewhere else. And so Jesus shows us this different way by how he's treated us. And how's he treated us? He's died for us while we were his enemies, while we were people who were unjust and evil, ungrateful, and running the other way. He loved us and gave himself for us. He bore our sins by uh, what he's done. We are healed. And so like him, where did Jesus' footprints lead if we're following his footprints? They lead to the cross. They lead to glory. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, you too need to die yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. And the cross is the symbol of uh, this is what the world does with people who rebel or you know, who say, I'm not in this system anymore. And the cross was Rome and the religious, religious leaders saying, you need to get in line or else. And Jesus said, no, I'm following God's way. And then he paid for all of our sin of wanting it to be up to us and all about us. And so we're told, love like God loves us, not like others have loved you. Is that, look how Jesus loved. He tells us, he didn't revile, he didn't threaten, he didn't do X, Y, and Z, and now that's how you ought to love as well, how you should treat them. And we're most like Jesus when we love our enemies. And when we suffer for doing good, it's an opportunity to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. And it's an opportunity to put our hope elsewhere and people should look at our lives and when things, you know, it's easy to complain about politicians and bosses, isn't it? I mean, aren't those like the easy, um, the easy targets of like, let's get together, coworkers get together, and like, oh, can you believe so-and-so, how they made this decision, how dumb that is, how that's not going to happen, or whoever, you know, I don't know, whatever your political leanings are, um, it's so easy, we'll complain about Trump or Biden or Obama, and it's like, we, it's so easy to bash on leaders, and we forget that they're humans. These are humans, image bearers of God, and we mistreat them from afar. It's not like we're looking at them in their face at any point and saying, like, hey, this, is, uh, um, this isn't right, but, I mean, we can discuss what they're doing, but he ultimately says, submit. And these, by the way, one of the emperors Peter lives under, he actually dies by his hands, um, but he's still saying, honor the emperor. Submit to him. And so we tend to uh, think it's all about me, and it's all up to me. When you just say, it's not all about me, it's not all up to me, this is about Jesus, and it's all up to him to make things right. And so oftentimes, if we give what Peter says later on as he ends these sections of talking about submitting to people, he says, 
be prepared to give a reason for your hope. Probably hope is one of his, his one of his main themes. It's like you have a hope that's untouchable, undefiled, unfading, imperishable. Nobody can touch it. Your hope and what God is doing in the future, which is a world without sin, a new heavens, a new earth, he's making all things new. That hope is untouchable. And so in our interaction with our bosses or on politics, our hope people should see it just seems like your hope doesn't be isn't in what others think of you. Your hope isn't in how others treat you or whether you're successful in, in this life, or whether uh, things are going your way or not. People should see that we don't get ruffled easily. It's, we don't go into panic mode when um, we don't have the right, uh, you know, the culture isn't going our way, or when the election doesn't go our way, or when things at work don't go our way, that they see our hope is somewhere else, that you know, they would see your hope sees, seems untouchable. You're, you're not being phased by these things. They're talking about doing layoffs, and you're just kind of still at peace, you're joyful, you're still loving people, you're still loving our boss. How can you treat them like that? Do you know what they're doing? That they're laying us off in that way? And it could be our boss or co-workers or, or election time that people see, you just don't have a lot of hope invested in an outcome here. You don't have much riding on this and our peace and joy don't fluctuate up and down with how you know, our paycheck goes or our performance review goes or how our retirement is going or how election is going. And People see our hope isn't in yet in that, and yet they say, but you're such a good employee. You just have this hope that isn't in this workplace. And yet you're such a great employee. You work hard. You don't badmouth people. And we don't have our hope in a political party, president, stock market, what laws are or aren't passed. And yet people would see, you're such a good citizen. Like Obviously, the way this is going isn't in your favor, and yet you still aren't complaining. You're still just doing good. And so people should see, you're different. Something's different about you. Why? What is it? And then we give them the reason for our hope. And they ask because they see an out-of-ordinary response to things not going our way or being mistreated. And we can say, well, I, just, I have a better king. I have a better boss than this. And my hope is with them, uh, not in all this. And so that frees me to love them because my hope isn't in them. I don't feel like I have a lot at stake here. Like, yeah, I might lose my job or this or that. My political party might not be in power, but it's like, eh, you know, that would have been nice, but I don't have it. And my hope's not there. I still have peace and joy. And we say, I have a better king and a better boss than this. So I want to close this sermon. I just want you to take a moment and think about authority figures in your life. Um, or maybe you're like, I don't have a problem with my authority figures, but I do have a problem with this person. I want you to think about who's an authority figure you have difficulty with. You could say, like, I don't like Biden. It could be all the way up there where you don't really have a whole lot of personal interaction there. I mean, maybe you do. I don't know. Maybe Air Force One is coming over and picking you up for lattes in the morning. I don't know. But uh, it could be Biden. You could be like, I just had a bad attitude toward our president. I have a bad attitude toward our city. I've had a bad attitude toward my boss or my manager. And I want you to just take a moment and pray for them. Pray for their welfare pray for um, them to make good decisions and then I'll pray and then we'll close this sermon. Take a moment and just pray for an authority figure in your life.
Father, thank you for freeing us by your love that we might love others as you've loved us. Would you help us to give our love freely and our honor freely to those who are in authority over us? Would you let us show that we are different because we have a different king, we have a different hope, we have a different savior, and our hope is not invested in these authority figures in our lives, but it is all banking on you and your son. It's his name we pray. Amen.